Hello. What? Hey, how's it going? You know, I've been better. <clears throat> Excuse me, you can hear it in my voice. I am a little sick. I came down with a cold Saturday night, and it's just one of those head colds where you're just congested, and the drainage in your throat is just inflaming your throat, and you can't sleep very well. So I'm going to be pressing the mute switch quite a bit as I cough and sneeze and sniffle, but uh, otherwise, I'm happy to be talking to you. Boy, I am happy to be talking to you with the presence of a mute switch. That's lovely. <laughs> well, let's be clear. The audience is going to get the mute switch. You have to listen to the sniffles. That's true. I was just playing along. And as I was saying it, I was realizing, huh, I don't have a mute switch. Never mind. <laughs> okay. You get all the joys of this, my friend. Oh, it's going to be vulnerable. <laughs> yeah. So how are you? I'm doing, I'm doing okay. It's a fine day. I have lovely things scheduled for the day, but uh, I'm worn out. Hmm. But I'll talk more about that in thoughts later on, because uh, oh. I have some thoughts about that. So I'm hesitant only because I have thoughts about it. Interesting. Um, okay. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, it doesn't sound like they're very happy thoughts. So I'm not sure if I'm supposed to say, oh, well, I'm looking forward to that. Or... <laughs> I look forward to ending the conversation on a down note. Yeah. Which really inspires people to want to listen to the next one. Yeah. It's going to be great. <laughs> we know how to sell it, don't we? Yes. All right. Well, what's on your mind today? I am so excited for one reason, at least. And that is that we are finally at the time when we are going to discuss Miroslav Volf's Exclusion and Embrace. We've been talking about this for ages. Uh, both of us were reading it independently and just decided to turn it into a series of conversations. And I spent this last weekend reading uh, the introduction and chapter one, and I am so excited to finally get to talk about it. Yeah, me too. I'll tell you, it's funny. I'm looking at my print copy right now. And inscribed on the inside is a note from a friend who gave me this book for my 40th birthday. My friend Ben gave me this book, and he wrote in the inscription, uh, hope you've gained some wisdom over the years. You're going to need it to wrap your head around this one. <laughs> and it's proven to be a challenging book. It is a tough book. Can I just tell you on a completely random note, a funny Ben story Oh, about yeah. your friend Ben? This is a different Ben, but please, by all means. Oh, it's not your friend Ben. Well, I have two friends named Ben. I have three friends named Ben. Oh, but you have like a really good friend that you've had for a really long time named Ben, right? Yes. Yeah, we can talk about yes. that guy. Okay, let's talk about that guy for a minute. So I was with uh, one of my high school friends this week. He gathered a bunch of his friends for a birthday party from all over the country, and one of them was named Ben. And I was seconds away from saying to him, this is the famous friend Ben that I have heard about my whole it, like 20 years, 30 years of being friends with you. And then I suddenly realized, oh, wait, no, that's not him. That's you, Josh from Oregon. And I barely swallowed back the comment before putting my foot in my mouth. Uh, because I uh, almost made a fool of myself. 
Oh my gosh, that is awesome. I would have loved to have seen the guy's reaction to be like, dude, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, no, it would have been very funny. Um, <laughs> but uh, I managed to keep it in. So that's delightful. But uh, So you're ready to talk about Miroslav Volf. Yes, yes. And I think what we've promised our audience is that we would start with kind of a recap, making sure we understand the content and then we would transition into, okay, how do we live this out? How does this apply to today? Yeah, I am. I'm super, super excited. So this first section of what's he actually saying? You want to take a shot at summarizing? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the he's centering really around the idea of identity, uh, how we draw parameters around our identity, how we say who's in, who's out, how we define that is a big driver of the conflicts that we have between different groups with different identities. Is that kind of the central theme that you grabbed out of this? Yeah, out of this first chapter, it seems to me like he is saying exactly that. In the modern era, identity is a massive cause of conflict because our sense of identity is... He doesn't use this word, but I might use the word parochial or local. So it's very easy when you have a localized sense of identity to shift into an us versus them sort of way of thinking. And at some point, he says that violence stemming from this is the biggest problem we are currently dealing with. And then it seems to me like he shifts from there to saying that he is going to offer a solution. Uh, like kind of halfway through the chapter, he says there's sort of social solutions, like how do we set up society and individual solutions? Who do I need to be to address this problem? And he says, both are important, but different experts need to address both. And it is my role as the kind of expert that I am to address the who do we need to be kind of solution. Yeah, I really appreciated that. He's like, look, theologians really need to have a voice in this, but we also need to stay in our own lane. Theologians are not social theoreticians. Is that the right word? I don't know, but I knew what you meant, so I'm going with it. Okay. I'm going to pretend I was very, very smart and knew that, whatever I was trying to say. Um, so, But instead, theologians understand the moral sphere and how God has instituted humanity and how he has created us to be and what he expects from us. And so it's from that perspective that he wants to approach this issue, not because the social construction is false or irrelevant, but because he's not finding himself to be fully qualified to speak to it. And that uh, how we operate as individuals ultimately will influence the types of structures that we create. And so he finds it almost foundational, if I can put that word in there. Yeah, absolutely. And that's and then from there, he sketches sort of his vision of the theological project he's about to undertake, right? Yeah, which I love the fact that it is centered on the cross. I think, mm. you know, the Sunday school answer is always... Oh, it all comes back to Jesus. You know, it reminds me of like a, a there's a little joke about 
a little four-year-old girl in Sunday school, and the teacher is describing all the attributes of a squirrel. And, you know, it's got a bushy tail, and it's, it collects acorns and all this. So what is this? And all the students just stare at her. And finally, this little girl says, well, I know the answer is supposed to be Jesus, but it sounds like a squirrel. <laughs> um, and so, you know... It, the Sunday school answer is to bring it all back to Jesus, but it, the reality is it does come back to Jesus, but we have to define that. We have to say, in what way does it come mm. back to Jesus? And for him to zero in on the cross and say the self-donation, which I really love that term that he uses, the self-donation of Christ on the cross is the focal point. This is the identity that we take on as Christians that influences how we respond to the quote-unquote other. Yeah, it was so interesting to me. Wolf is pulling the theological academia to something that is fairly traditional about the cross, right? He begins by talking about his mentor. Uh, what's Moltmann's first name? Hürgen. Uh, Hürgen Moltmann, thank you. Moltmann focuses on the kind of liberation theology idea of solidarity, which is really a valuable piece of what the cross is all about. But Wolf is pulling back to something that Moltmann focused on later in his career, which is the idea of, yeah, but what does the cross offer to the perpetrator yes. rather than just the one who is suffering? And I think that that kind of return to a traditional or a reintroduction of a traditional orthodox theme offers us something really, really important when we start asking this question of how do we relate to the other? Because it's so easy to relate to the other when the other is kind, nice, polite, easygoing. But how do you relate to the other when he or she is a perpetrator is a very different question. And ultimately, his argument is, I think Jesus went to the cross to express a self-donating love, not just to the worthy, but to the unworthy. And if we are going to claim to participate in the cross with Jesus, we have to be prepared to live our lives on the same terms. Yeah. I really appreciate that you're talking about self-donation being easy when you're dealing with somebody who is kind or somebody who reciprocates. But mm. Jesus's self-donation on the cross flies in the face of that. It says, this is self-donation in the face of abuse. I, I really appreciate James Cone's description of the cross as a lynching tree or the fact that this was a lynch mob that crucified Jesus. That is injustice. That is persecution. Absolutely. That is vile violence at its rawest form. And Jesus self-donates in the face of that. And I really appreciate what Wolf says about this. He calls it scandalous. And mm. I think that's a really great word for it. And he says, the ultimate scandal of the cross is the all-too-frequent failure of self-donation to bear positive fruit. In other words, mm. you're going to donate yourself. Jesus demonstrates donating himself and seemingly not getting any fruit. Like the the people who crucified him did not repent of that and did not reciprocate and did not become kinder, 
more gentle humans as a result. Yeah, no, absolutely. This is the interesting thing, right? Like that exact quote struck me as well. In the context of our productivity-focused culture, the fact that this is not the most efficient way to accomplish a goal. Earlier on, he talked about how the Gospels aren't about what Jesus did. The Gospels are a revelation of the character of Jesus. This is Jesus living out the character of God. Yeah. And it's not a program designed to accomplish a task. It's God being God. It is. And therefore, that is the God we serve. That is the God with whom we identify. In fact, calling ourselves little Christs. This is mm. who we strive to be. And so if we are truly to be Christ-like as his disciples, we will demonstrate self-giving love even in the face of pure evil, and it's scandalous. Yeah. And so we're already sort of starting to turn the corner here, I think, from what he said to how do we live this out? Is it fair to make that shift at this point? I think it is, but I can I give a caveat before we do that? Absolutely. We haven't talked much about the introduction, and for those who don't know, I want to set the stage, as Wolf himself does in the introduction, to show the listeners where this book came from. And I know you talked about this a long time ago in another episode, but for those who may not have caught that episode, Wolf gave a speech about Christians needing to love their enemies. And he, being a Croatian by birth, was approached by his mentor, Jürgen Moltmann, as you referenced before, um, after the speech and said, yes, but can you embrace a Chechnik, which is the Serbian national fighters who had caused so much havoc within the Croatian community? And could you embrace that guy? Mm. And so this is going back to, you know, now I'm not getting my timeline correct, but I'm thinking early 90s. Is that correct? That sounds right to me. At the very least, it is a time and a space that is removed from us. This is dealing with a European conflict from a number of decades ago. And we're going to find that the things that he wrestles with in this book are very, very relevant to our current time and place, but they are not identical to it. So as we go along and we explore his argument we as 21st century Americans who have lived with the political upheaval that we have over the last few years, we're going to listen to this argument and we're going to say, oh, well, that's that sounds very ultra right or that sounds very ultra left or, you know, that, you know what, whatever resemblance it makes to our current experience is accidental. This is not the audience or the situation to which he wrote. Yeah, it's so important to recognize this, I think. And a challenge, because it's fascinating that his grid overlays so perfectly on some of the things that are happening in our own context. It speaks to the universality, I think, of this as a challenge. Yes, it does. And it's, it's almost prophetic in a way that he could see some of how identity politics was shaping the course of history. 
And in his newest introduction that actually comes out after some of our political upheaval in the United States, he does say this, which I think is really fascinating. It's true both of his book, but it's also true of our current experience. And he says, in identity-centered struggles, religions tend to function as markers of group identities and tools in service of political forces acting as guardians of these identities. In mm. other words, we can brand ourselves as I'm this, I am this religion, or I have this worldview, and whatever political sphere seems to protect my identity as that, that's who I'm going to back, and that's who I'm going to... Uh, so in other words, all of a sudden, you you start shifting to defending your political allegiance as a way of defending your religious experience, and the two get enmeshed, and ultimately it becomes a tool of those in power to manipulate you and to manipulate the system. Yeah, this is the thing that's the most interesting to me about the way he describes this is religion becomes a tool of social identity, not the other way around. And so like you said, we start using the language of our faith to justify things. It is irrelevant whether the things we're justifying are consistent with our faith because they are consistent with our group identity, our social identity. Yes, well said. So in, in our kind of Christian context, we would use ideas like evangelism or whatever to serve our group identity and to marker our group identity. There's insiders and there's outsiders. As a matter of fact, offline, just before we talked, we were talking about the, the way in which even things like communion can be markers, right? Of we're, we're going to turn this into an insider-outsider moment rather than an invitational moment. Yeah. Uh, if And communion is a great example of the kind of thing that could be used to be an identity marker rather than something more like what Christ was aiming for. Well, and it's fascinating that you bring up communion because Wolf himself says, look, if we want to talk about the centrality of the cross, we want to talk about how this is the very heart of what it means to follow Christ. Look no further than baptism and communion, two things mm -hmm. that celebrate death and new life, this self-sacrifice of Jesus. It is central even to our two most basic functions as the church. So at least in my tradition, what could be the most central? You know, I was I was talking to someone just recently this weekend who has transitioned to being in a high church context, uh, an Anglican context. And one yeah. of the driving reasons for the transition in his mind was communion was not central to his evangelical upbringing. It happened once a quarter, and he didn't feel comfortable with the crucifixion being memorialized that infrequently. Yeah. I don't know that there's a right or wrong there, but I thought he made a wonderful point that on some level, remembrance of the cross got sidelined, mm. and that is problematic. 
Yeah, we were just talking about this. I was talking about this with a few of my pastors at my church, and it's fascinating. Our church is named Table Community Church because we find communion to be so central to the Christian idea. But I have been in many churches that practice communion in a variety of ways. And my upbringing, I believe we did communion once a month. Maybe it was once a quarter, but I think it was once a month. And at this church that I'm at now, Table, we do it every week. You know, there's a fear, right, that something that gets done every week becomes rote and loses its meaning. Um, yeah, I that's understand. why I've actually shifted to eating only once a month. Yeah. Well, somebody, uh, yes, in the discussion we had, somebody very, <laughs> just wonderfully made the point. He's like, yeah, that's why I only kiss my wife once a year. You know, it just becomes cheap, you know. Uh, exactly. So, <laughs> which I just thought was awesome. Yeah, exactly. It's We try to guard against something in this, I think, that we need to grow through rather than guard against. Yes, yes. Um, but So I want to come back to this idea, though. You were talking about, before your caveat about group identity, as we were transitioning into talking about how do we live this out, we were talking about the the idea that self-donating love is not about accomplishing a task. It's not about the ends. It's just the way God is. And the question that I kept coming back to as I wrestled with this, and I've mentioned it to you before, is how does this square with our very good growing emphasis on things like self-care. I personally have a hard time squaring these two things. And I'm not sure if that's just me or if I'm missing something obvious, but I often find myself feeling pulled in two directions, which typically for me means that I'm missing something. Yeah, that to me... I think that really comes down to, are we serving out of the overflow or are we serving on our own power? And I can, you know, go out there and self-sacrifice and just overpour myself out and have nothing left. And ultimately, after a very short time, do no further good. Or I can live rooted and established in Christ poured into to the point of overflowing by his love, his companionship, his fellowship, and his body that surrounds me. And I can do this together in concert with his people and pour out from an overflow, or I can just let myself be depleted and run dry and call it self-sacrifice. And I think one is healthy and one is not. And I, I hear that answer, but when I look at the crucifixion, Jesus does not appear to me to be operating out of overflow. He, well, then what, is, what was he doing in the garden? What was all that prayer about? What was Tanking. Like, he was emotionally sure. tanked then, and then he's emotionally tanked on the cross when he's like, God, you just abandoned me. What the heck? He is so tanked. His own theology isn't even making sense in his own head anymore. And... That's exactly what it makes it sound, feel to me like he's not operating out of any kind of overflow. He's operating out of a phenomenal lack that 
sounds to me for all the world like he's just dragging himself through it because he knows it's the right thing to do. I think there's elements of that, but you also have the conversation with the thief that says, today you will be with me in paradise. Like He's still got a vision of who he is, what he's doing, and reaching others. Like I think he's still got his head on his shoulders. I think he's operating, yes, at the end of himself, but not at the end of any sort of supply of power or strength. And he even turns around and and basically making sure his mom's taken care of. He's still nurturing. He's still caring for other people, even though he is clearly at the end of himself. I think he's drawing on a power from the people that are gathered around him to support him. And I think he's drawing on the power of the Heavenly Father that he desperately needed in the garden and he desperately needed to carry with him throughout everything that remained. It's fair. You know, this, and this may be, there may be a deeply subjective element to this. You know, I, I think back to our episode that we did on consolation and desolation. Mm. And I wonder if in the same set of circumstances, two different people could experience consolation and desolation, and therefore it would be a worthwhile space to be in for the one who experiences consolation and not a good space to be in for the person who experiences desolation. Well, and I think I, I appreciate that you fact the fact that you bring up our consolation and desolation, because one of the things that we talked about is that even in desolation, even when you feel that God is distant, the reality is that God is still near. God is still doing what God does. We just may not feel it in that moment. And to be patient because consolation will come again. And so maybe that's why we're we're talking from two different standpoints. I'm talking about what is factually true behind the scenes, and you're talking about how Jesus must have felt in the midst of it. Yeah. Well, and I'll be honest, what I'm really thinking about and what is driving the conversation for me is the number of folks I know who are in ministry who know that God is present, know that God is loving, know that consolation is theoretically coming at some point, and they are not well. Hmm. If they do the thing that looks the most like following the crucifixion, they will not be focusing on self-care. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's a good point. And I just, I don't know what to do with that. Like, I don't, and yet I know the deeply personal nature of this will come out when we get to thoughts, but I wonder what to do. Maybe that's an over-application of the focus on the cross. Because the Gospels, yes, spend a lot of time talking about the cross. It is clearly central. But it is not the only story by a long shot of Jesus's life. We have a really mm. in-depth look at his ministry and what it means to live. And I'm going to use a word uh, by Michael Gorman, to live in cruciformity, to live a cruciformed life, and then to die a death of crucifixion. That is a point in time thing. And we have to look at the broader story of the Gospels to see how we live in a cruciformed life. That's a great point. And, you know, and I think, I think we have to consider also the main point that the why. The main point I think that Wolf is making here, as I think about it, is that the function 
of Jesus' crucifixion was to embrace the other. Hmm. It wasn't to simply preach a better sermon. It was the ultimate embodiment of embracing someone different from ourselves or for God to embrace somebody different from himself. And it may be that self-depletion is simply a bad analogy. You know, living 60 hours a week isn't the same as crucifying yourself or serving your local church 60 hours a week or allowing yourself to get financially in the hole because you love Jesus and you're like constantly giving money away without thinking about the long-term consequences to your life. All of that really isn't necessarily about loving someone who's different from you, Mm. right? Yeah. Uh, And and there's an interesting test here. Like, how does that make you feel? Like, is that, am I feeling awesome about how awesome I am? Or am I like, is it hard for me to love this person? Like I was, man, I was on a plane the other day and I genuinely found myself praying that I would not be seated as we were walking on the plane near this particular woman because I thought she was so obnoxious. Mm. It may be that the most self-crucifying thing I can do is willingly engage that person in conversation. That may be more powerful than like working a 90-hour work week. Sure. I'm so glad you brought it back around to the ultimate topic here, which is how do we love the other? And I think one of the most helpful things to do in this early part is to clearly define in our own minds who that other is. Now, I'm pretty sure nobody wants to admit that on Facebook or whatever, but you know, just to get real clear in your own mind, because it was clear, crystallized for Wolf as he went through this study. Who is the other? Well, it's the Chechnik. You know, it's the group of people that came into my native country and caused such horrific devastation. That's the other. Now, how do I love them? And in our modern times, this might be people of a different political persuasion. It might be people on the other side of uh, whatever culture war debate you want to throw in here, the most prevalent of which is around sexual identity and sexual orientation. Whatever it is, who is the other that you would find it so loathsome to embrace them? Now, with that in mind, how do we embrace the cross? How do we call ourselves disciples of the crucified Messiah? Mm. So good. So I want to say to our audience, uh, I'm super excited to be diving into this book with all of you. I have no idea what I want you to post on Facebook about this because this is deeply personal. Could you just let us know on a comment or somewhere on Facebook? I'm tracking with you. I'm in this. That would be awesome. No self-disclosure needed. Just I'm with you. And that would be awesome. That would be very encouraging to us. And uh, so we would love to hear from you. But more than that, I hope that these conversations are enriching for all of us. And if you find this episode or any of our other episodes to be worthwhile, something that would benefit somebody else, please, by all means, share our podcast. We love to spread this conversation as far and wide as we can. Yeah, absolutely. And as you read, we would love to have you 
snap a picture or jot down a quote, uh, we would love to hear what you are most caught by. Even as we were trying to summarize the chapter, what do you think we missed? What are the highlights that really struck you? One of my favorite things about reading with a group of people is to see the material through someone else's eyes. Mm. So I really am excited to see what other people thought was primarily important in the reading. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, it's been hinted at a couple of different times, but you've got some deep thoughts going on and I would love to hear them. You know, I don't know if it's deep thoughts so much as it is an observation. And it revolves around a word that we use a lot and that I am deeply uncomfortable with, and that's the word burnout. You know, as I look back on the last 10 years of my life, there were several years of a very heavy season of ministry, and then COVID struck. And then we went through a significant move that was a real emotional struggle for me. And then we went into a season of ministry at a new church, and that had some significant challenges that were unexpected connected to it. And that brings me through 10 years. And I was sitting and talking with my wife about all of this, and I said, you know, I just have a hard time staying focused. I have a hard time mustering the energy for tasks I know I care about. And she said, you know, you're describing the classic symptoms of burnout. And I, I was grateful to be able to have this conversation with my wife. My response was, I'm embarrassed about that. Mm. I want to be the person who is strong enough to not burn out. I deeply believe burnout is for other people. Mm. And I suspect I'm not the only one. And so really my entire thought today is to acknowledge that it has been a hard season and that I am almost certainly struggling with some kind of burnout. And I want to say that out loud because I'm probably not the only one. And if you're struggling with that too, you are not alone. I appreciate that. You know, you you said, I want to say that out loud. And, and I thought couldn't. to myself- Did you notice that you? I couldn't? Yeah, right. But, you know, in a way, I think if I'm hearing you right, you're saying, I want to say that out loud because I don't want to say that out loud. That's exactly right. One of the things I have come to believe more and more is First John's invitation to live in the light and that living in the light is healing. Yeah. And saying to safe people what you're struggling with and even your dislike of what you're struggling, because what I'm struggling with is the fact that I don't like what I'm struggling with. <laughs> right? Yes. And, and so that's what I have to say. I'm embarrassed about this. Mm. Well, but you're right about the light. Once you say that, it loses so much of its steam and its power. And I don't know how you're feeling in this moment, but I have done similar things and I have felt like, man, even as the words are coming out of my mouth, 
they just don't have as much sting as they did a minute ago. It's almost like, okay, yeah, I can I can get past that. That's fine. It doesn't live in my head anymore. I get it. It's fine. Yeah, my first therapist uh, years and years ago, whenever I had a moment like this, she would say, now let's just take a moment and watch the world not fall apart together. <laughs> oh, that's so good. What she was really saying was, look, I'm still here. You're still there. Nothing has changed, and it's okay. Hmm. The world is okay. And I think that's what's good. The world is okay. I have deep and healthy and abiding connections with people who will be okay with me no matter what. And that's what makes it okay. And one of those is with Jesus. And I have to remind myself about that too. Yeah. But... Yeah, that's what I've been thinking about the last day since it, yesterday was the first day that the, the burnout word had come up. And so it's really just been on my mind a lot. But what about you? What have you been thinking about? Yeah, we talked a little bit about this offline, but I was really struck in reading a couple of books back to back. I read the book Sabbath as Resistance by Walter Brueggemann. And then right after that, I started reading Culture Care by Makoto Fujimura. And mm. these two books combined both talked about the over-commodification that happens in our society. Everything is for sale. Literally everything is for sale. And if, if it isn't for sale, we find a way to market it. And I realized that we had been brainstorming offline about how to commodify, how to get paid to do our podcast. Neither of us like commercials, so we weren't really going to do that. Uh, neither of us liked a lot of these different options. And so what we had landed on offline was doing like a Patreon and maybe making a couple of special episodes that were only for Patreon subscribers and, you know, maybe giving some gifts or some things. And honestly, as I sat and thought about these things, I went, I don't want to commodify this podcast. I don't want to add to the cultural norm of everything being for sale. And then you took it another step further in our conversation, which you said, I don't want to commodify our friendship. And that's super powerful. And especially in what you just so vulnerably shared a moment ago about burnout and about your own struggle and about your own embarrassment about being in the place that you are, that should not be for sale. That should not be so cheapened as to be a commodity. So I appreciate that, uh, you know, offline, we've just decided we're not going to monetize this. This is just not what we're going to do. Now, it actually costs us money to do the podcast. We have to pay for hosting and, you know, we have to use a lot of our time for this and different things. I don't know how that all is going to work, but at the end of the day, we don't want to make it for sale. Yeah, absolutely. I have really loved your thoughts about this and uh, was grateful for really everything that you brought up about this because I thought you made some excellent points and I am super grateful for this set of thoughts. Yeah. So thank you to the ever insightful Walter Brueggemann and Makoto Fujimura. They were excellent teachers. Yeah, absolutely. 
Okay. That brings us to the Witch Josh question. Witch Josh, at the age of four, attempted to walk the entire 2.5 miles to grandma's house. And that is me. Um, We lived out in the country. In fact, we had a, a quarter mile long driveway and on one side was a pig farm and on the other side was a cow farm and, or a dairy, sorry, you know, maybe I should use proper words. Um, and <laughs> it, so it smelled terrific, let me tell you. Uh, anyway, but we drove up this driveway and then in the back was uh, where we lived. And, you know, I knew the roads, these like country roads that would take me to grandma's house, or at least at the age of four, I thought I did. And so I just, one day I was playing outside and then I'm just decided, you know what? I'm off. I'm gone. I I didn't tell anybody. My mom freaked out. Uh, she had no idea I where I was. she did. Yeah. So she called my grandparents. She called the police. She called all sorts of people like, where did he go? And here I was. I have this distinct memory of getting, I probably made it a mile and I'm standing on the side of the road crying because I'm like, oh, shoot, I didn't know this route as much as I thought I did. And this car is like stopping and checking on me. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm fine. Keep going, you know. Uh, And ultimately, my grandparents show up and find me. And uh, so I I still got to spend the time with my grandparents. We like I played baseball with my grandpa and, you know, it actually worked out well for me. But I I think I really freaked everybody out. Doesn't sound like your mom was super happy. No, no. Yeah. Funny how that works. Yeah. And appropriately so. Uh, <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. Oh, man. All right. Well, you ready for another conversation about chapter chapter two next week, right? You know, you bring up a good point. We are using the revised and updated version of this book. And in the revised and updated version, this will be chapter two. If anybody's working off of version one, I believe this will be chapter one. So that might get confusing. Please know we are working on the revised and updated version. So yes, chapter two. We should say the titles. This is the chapter titled Distance and Belonging. Yes. Good clarification. All right. Distance and Belonging, one week from today. How about it? All right. I'll talk to you then. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Bye.